Hello, my name is Pablo Moscoso de la Cuba. I am a teacher here. I, I teach international law at the Pontifical Catholic University of Peru. I have been in charge of the course Public International Law, also the course Law, on the, law of the Sea and Other Spaces, um, International Dispute Settlement, and also the course um, Subjects of International Law. I did my LLM at Leiden University and I work at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs as a legal advisor, but today I am speaking to you in a, in a strictly personal capacity. Um, the topic of this lecture, um, for which I would like to thank the United Nations Office of Legal Affairs Codification Division for the kind invitation. I am very honored to be here participating in this lecture. And the topic is um, the obligation to comply with the decisions of the International Court of Justice. Um, to speak about this uh, subject, we of course must look into the UN Charter. Um, as you know, the United Nations Charter, Article 94, Paragraph 1, states that each member of the United Nations undertakes to comply with the decision of the International Court of Justice in any case to which it is a party. Now, several points can be made about this article. First, that the article does not define what is a decision of the International Court of Justice. And this is important because the court renders uh, both judgments and also orders, as we'll see a little bit later in this lecture. Then, um, this article applies only to United Nations members, um, to our parties to a case before the court. Therefore, um, this article applies to uh, contentious cases. And it does not apply to advisory opinions. And then, uh, third, um, because um, this applies to uh, parties to cases, to cases um, it means that uh, there is no legal binding, legally binding um, precedent in uh, the judgments or decisions of the International Court of Justice. This is confirmed in the Statute of the Court, um, which, as you know, the statute is an annex to the Charter itself. And Article um, According to, to the UN Charter, the Statute of the Court is an annex and in its integral part of um, the Charter, meaning that the Charter and the Statute are both one treaty. Um, well, Article 59 of the uh, Statute uh, states that the decision of the Court has no binding force except between the parties and in respect of that particular case. Therefore, once again, there is no binding uh, precedent in other decisions of the International Court of Justice. Now, concerning what is a decision of the court, um, the court in the judge 2001 judgment on the Lagrange case stated that um, regarding this issue, um, paragraph one of Article 94 of the Charter can be interpreted in two different ways. Um, according to the court, the wording on that paragraph could be understood as referring not merely to the court's judgments, but also to any other decision rendered by the court, including the orders of the court, such as those which um, indicate provisional measures. But the court also said that um, that article could be understood as only referring to judgments of the court. Uh, in the same judgment, the court stated that um, orders uh, concerning provisional measures are binding under Article 41 of the statute. But it, is, it did not um, specify if um, decisions include orders. 
it only specify that orders are binding because of Article 41 of the Statute of the Court. Now, so are orders in general also decisions of the court? Um, I believe that the answer is yes. Um, if we use the rules for treaty interpretation and apply them to um, Article 94, Paragraph 1 of the UN Charter, um, as you know, the rules of treaty interpretation are um, laid down in um, and reflected in Article 31 of the 1969 Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties. According to that article, um, the general rule of treaty interpretation means that a treaty shall be interpreted in good faith in accordance with the ordinary meaning of the, to, give, give, sorry, to be given to the terms of the treaty in their context and in the light of its object and purpose. So we must interpret Article 94 of the UN Charter uh, together with other provisions of the Charter. We, we should read also the um, uh, preamble and Article 1 on the purposes of the United Nations and Article 2 on uh, principles of the United Nations, including the uh, principle of um, peaceful settlement of disputes. And if we take all of this into consideration, um, and also uh, if we look into the statute, which, which as, I, as I said, is a part of one treaty together with the Charter, um, I believe that uh, it, it can be understood that decisions of the court include orders in general, uh, including, of course, those which um, indicate provisional measures. Therefore, under Article 94 of the UN Charter, um, all decisions of the court are binding to member states of the, of the um, United Nations regarding the cases that those uh, states have before the court. Um, now, um, as I mentioned before, uh, the court uh, renders both judgments and orders. Um, judgments of the court may be sometimes on the merits when the case, uh, when, when a case goes all the way to the uh, to the end and the uh, merits are decided. Um, but also, the, the court renders judgments on preliminary objections under Article 79, Paragraph 9 of the Rules of the Court. Um, as well, the, um, the court renders judgments on questions of jurisdiction and or admissibility. Um, also on the question of compensation. And as well on uh, whether it decides to grant a request to intervene. Uh, other states may request to intervene under Article 62 of the statute. And when the court decides, it renders a judgment. Um, also the court uh, renders judgment to interpret previous judgments. It's only happened a few times, but um, it's, uh, that is, uh, of course, uh, uh, provided in the statute in Article 60. And the court may also give judgments to revise previous judgments. Although that has not happened in the past, it may occur sometime in the future. Uh, regarding orders, the court, of course, gives orders on provisional measures. And it may also give orders under Article 48 of the statute on any question of uh, procedure. Therefore, all of these decisions of the court, I believe, um, are binding on um, UN member states. Now, what does it mean to comply with a decision of the court? Um, according to Alexandra Huneus, uh, judgment compliance occurs when a state or, or, or other actor subject to a court carries out the actions required by a ruling of the court or refrains from carrying out actions prohibited by a ruling of the court. 
and this applies to judgments and, as I said before, also to orders of the court. Um, then, then is the issue also of um, how are decisions complied with. Well, that depends on the kind of decision. Some decisions of the court are only declaratory in nature. So they do not impose any obligations on the parties to the case. For example, when the court de uh, denies a request uh, to intervene, um, the parties to the case do not have to carry out any particular action um, in compliance of that judgment. Also, when the court, for example, declares that it has no jurisdiction in a case, then the parties of the case, just the case ends, uh, and then they do not have to comply with any uh, other measures um, granted or um, stated by the court. Um, then we should look at a particular judgment or, or order to see how it should be complied with, because in some cases uh, the court will order the parties to carry out an action, and sometimes it will ask or order the parties to refrain from acting in a particular way. Um, there is also the case of uh, judgments, for example, that set out um, international boundaries. Um, the parties to those cases must comply with uh, those judgments for um, a permanent uh, period of time. Um, just they, con they, they may have to continue applying the judgment 50 years later, for example. Um, and then, of course, that may change if the parties decide um, to, by an agreement, for example, they decide to um, modify their, um, their boundary, either land boundary or a maritime boundary. That can be done uh, by the parties if they agree together, of course, um, to do that. But if one party decides to not recognize uh, an international boundary, that party would be um, not complying with the judgment of the court in that particular case. Um, when we speak about um, the compliance uh, or how to comply with judgments, we also have to consider the issue of the implementation of the court's ruling. Um, because in order to comply, often uh, states have to make changes in their internal or domestic legal systems. For example, they may have to adopt new uh, rules, um, new regulations, new laws. They may have to modify uh, previous laws or to revoke any um, law or um, regulation. And this, is, this can be very difficult to accomplish. Um, Constance Schulte says, for example, that problems implementing decisions of the court are almost inevitable to um, avoid. They happen often. The same was uh, said by the president of the court back in 2010 in, an, in a speech to uh, the Sixth Committee of the General Assembly. Uh, Judge Owada mentioned that, in general, the most difficult aspect of compliance is not in the initial stage of accepting or rejecting the judgment. Uh, rather, problems often arise at the stage of meaningful implementation of the obligations imposed on the judgment. And uh, often, uh, states have to agree and cooperate in order to implement the decisions of the court. So this can create difficulties in um, complying with judgments. Um, now, because uh, Article 94, of course, is um, part of the UN Charter, which is a treaty, we must look into some, uh, some aspects related to uh, treaty law. Um, first of all, of course, uh, there is the principle of uh, pacta sunt servanda, 
which is both a principle and is a, a rule of international law, reflected in Article 26 of the 1969 Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties. Uh, it may be considered the uh, main uh, principle in treaty law, of course, and according to this principle and rule, every treaty in force is binding upon the parties and must be performed by them in good faith. And so what does it mean to perform a treaty in good faith? According to the court, in its 1997 judgment on the Gapsico and Aguimaros project, um, the principle of good faith obliged the parties to apply the treaty in a reasonable way and in such a manner that its purpose can be realized. Um, so, of course, this principle applies when, um, when states have to comply with decisions of the court because the obligation comes from the UN Charter, which is a treaty. Uh, it is indeed a treaty obligation. Also, um, there is the principle of the supremacy of international law. It is also reflected in um, the 1969 Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties, in Article 27, according to which a party may not invoke the provisions of its internal law as justification for the failure to perform a treaty. Um, this applies to any kind of um, internal law of regulation, even a state's constitution. A state may not, may not um, invoke its constitution to not comply with a decision of the International Court of Justice. Um, and then there is also the, uh, what we spoke about uh, in the implementation of the court's rulings, and this has been recognized um, in international law for a long time. Um, for example, in the 1925, advisory opinion of the Permanent Court of International Justice on the um, issue of the exchange of Greek and Turkish uh, populations, um, that court uh, recognized that it is a principle which is self-evident um, that a state that has contracted valid international obligations must, must make modifications in um, its legislation in order to comply with those uh, obligations. And this, as I mentioned before, includes, of course, um, uh, all judgments uh, and other decisions of the International Court of Justice. Now, the um, UN Charter is a treaty, but it is not any treaty. It is a very special treaty because of its Article 103. As you know, um, according to that article, in the event of a conflict between the obligations of the members of the United Nations under the Charter and the obligations under any other international agreement, their obligations under the present Charter or the Charter shall prevail. Now, according to the International Law Commission, this means that the Charter is in a higher hierarchical um, stage regarding other obligations and rules of international law. So there is a relational hierarchy between the Charter and the obligations that uh, emanate from the Charter and other obligations under international law. This does not include, uh, of course, um, use Cohen's obligations, but other obligations do um, have a lower hierarchy than those that emanate from the Charter. Um, this was uh, recognized by the International Law Commission in its 2006 report on the conclusions of the work of the study group 
on the fragmentation of international law, uh, according to which a rule of international law may also be superior to other rules by virtue of a treaty provision. And the one example that the Commission uh, mentions in this uh, report is Article 103 of the UN Charter. Um, and also, uh, the same Commission um, has stated in the same report that uh, this includes, this um, special nature of the UN Charter includes all decisions made by UN organs um, that are binding. This includes decisions by the uh, Security Council and also decisions of the International Court of Justice, which of course are um, binding. <clears throat> then there is the issue of what happens when um, there is a conflict between uh, any obligation resulting from a judgment or decision of the International Court of Justice and um, other rules of international law. Since the Charter is in a higher hierarchy, um, according to the International Law Commission, then um, a rule conflicting with Article 103 of the Charter becomes inapplicable. This means that states which uh, have to comply with a decision of the ICJ because they were parties to a case before the ICJ have to apply um, the judgment and not other obligations lower in hierarchy that may be against or which may conflict with um, a decision of the court. So, uh, so far we have uh, seen how um, obligations uh, emanating from judgment or judgments or decisions of the ICJ are treaty obligations. We have also seen how they uh, are only applicable to the parties to the case and regarding that specific case. And we have seen how those obligations prevail over other obligations of the parties. But there are other issues to consider. Um, first, that the obligation to comply with decisions of the ICJ does not have any, uh, or does not admit any conditions. Um, this can be seen, for example, in Article 60 of the Statute, which states that the judgment of the court is final and without appeal. This refers only to judgments, but if the court decides um, and renders a decision, either a judgment or an order, parties to the case have to comply, and they have to comply um, with no, uh, no conditions. Um, then there is a question of whether this is an obligation of result or an obligation of means. Uh, that is an obligation that um, the parties have to achieve a very particular result or that they have to carry out a certain conduct. Those are obligations, these are latter obligations of means or conduct. Well, the court in the 1951 judgment on the Aya de la Torre case stated that um, in that particular case, uh, the court was unable to tell the parties to determine how to comply with a previous judgment. Um, the court stated um, in that 1951 judgment that there are different ways to comply with, the with decisions of the court. And um, those ways are conditioned by facts and by possibilities which um, only the parties to the case uh, appreciate and can carry out. So the court considered in that case that it was not 
its um, function to choose uh, in a, one way to comply with a previous judgment. Um, the court, in fact, stated that um, it would be against the court's judicial function to tell the parties how to comply with the judgment. So, in principle, um, it is for the parties to decide how to comply with the decision of the court. Unless something else is, of course, um, decided by the court in the judgment or order. Um, but that may be rare, I believe. Um, so, in principle, the obligation to comply with judgments, judgments of the court um, is not a, an obligation of means. It's an obligation uh, of result to comply. Uh, it is up for the parties to decide how to comply. Um, so, there we can identify several characteristics of the obligation to uh, comply with judgments of the court. It is a treaty obligation. Um, it's only applicable to the parties on, and for one particular case. Then it's an obligation that prevails over other obligations of the parties. Um, it's not subject to conditions. And also that it is an obligation of a particular way that we have just uh, talked about. Um, and then there is uh, the issue of what happens if uh, judgments or decisions of the court in general are not complied with. Well, just like any other obligation under international law, uh, non-compliance means that the state that does not comply is internationally responsible for its conduct. Um, for that, one has to, has to look at the um, International Law Commission's articles on the responsibility of states. Um, of course, that is the uh, legal and the logical um, conclusion of finding that in one particular case, the court, or actually, sorry, the, the parties, or one of the parties has not complied with a decision of the court. That uh, party will be responsible internationally. Um, and there, of course, as you know, the uh, UN Charter, under uh, Article 94, Paragraph 2, um, has... Uh, there is um, there regulated a particular um, recourse that parties to a case may invoke if a judgment of the court or decision of the court is not complied with. Under Article 94, Paragraph 2, if any party to a case fails to perform the obligations incumbent upon it under a judgment rendered by the court, the other party may have recourse to the Security Council. This, of course, only happens uh, regarding the uh, decisions of the ICJ. It, does not, it is not a procedure that is available for other courts or tribunals. And that is because the court is the, the principal judicial organ of the United Nations, as you are aware. Um, in such cases, according to paragraph 2 of Article 94, um, the Security Council may, if it deems it necessary, it may make recommendations or decide upon measures to be taken to give effect to the judgment of the court. Um, now, this article has only been invoked once. Um, it was invoked, as you may probably know, by Nicaragua in 1986, after the ICJ judgment on the um, Nicaragua-United States case. Um, uh, after the judgment, Nicaragua considered that the United States had not complied with the judgment that he had actually taken measures against the judgment after it was rendered by the court. And um, Nicaragua uh, asked for a meeting on the Security Council, 
and the Council met in July 1986, and a draft resolution uh, was uh, voted, and it obtained 11 uh, votes in favor, three abstentions, and the veto of the United States. And therefore, there was no resolution in that case by the Security Council. Um, then, a few months later, in October, Nicaragua again asked for a meeting of the Council on this topic, and another draft resolution was presented and was vetoed by the US, um, and it had the same number of votes in favor and abstentions. So, um, the only time that Article 94, Paragraph 2 of the UN Charter has, be, has been invoked in the past, um, no action could be taken by the Council because of the veto power of one of its um, permanent members. So, in that case, Nicaragua um, asked for a meeting of the UN General Assembly. And the Assembly did um, vote and approve a resolution which um, called for the compliance of the 1986 judgment. That happened in November of 1986, and the resolution had uh, 94 votes in favor, 3 uh, against, and 47 abstentions. Of course, there is no veto in the General Assembly, uh, but the, uh, the resolutions of the General Assembly are not binding, as you know. Um, eventually, um, la later, the parties uh, settled uh, this uh, issue, the issue of compliance between themselves. They reached an agreement. So, although there is that possibility that a party to a case may invoke Article 94, in the past, uh, that has not been successful. And then, um, more recently, uh, also Nicaragua, after the November 2012 judgment of the court on the um, uh, land, insular, and maritime boundary uh, case uh, between Nicaragua and Colombia, um, after the judgment in November 2012, Nicaragua considered that Colombia had not complied with the judgment. So, one year later, um, Nicaragua chose not to invoke Article 94, Paragraph 2 of the UN Charter, but instead, Nicaragua presented a new application to the court, uh, which, among other issues, asked the court to um, state that uh, the previous judgment had not been complied with. Now, that case is still pending before the court, so we may have to wait a little bit more to see if um, that can be also a way that the court, if the court in that case decides that um, one of the parties has not complied with the previous judgment, then um, we may conf get confirmation that other states may uh, choose that path in the future in case of non-compliance. Um, now, even though this lecture has been about compliance with decisions of the ICJ, um, I believe that um, non-compliance is actually not the rule, but is the, excep the exception. In most cases, uh, decisions of the ICJ, both judgments and orders, are complied with, um, sometimes immediately and without difficulties. So, um, this is an important uh, legal issue, um, which, of course, uh, concerns the application of the UN Charter itself. Um, but um, it's not a situation that happens often. Um, some other states, um, indeed, uh, not only have settled the differences between, between them um, before the court, but judgments and the other decisions of the court have been complied with um, 
rather in a very unproblematic way. So with this I, I um, will end this lecture and I would like to thank you for um, seeing the, the recording or listening to um, also the uh, audio recording. Thank you.